Hi. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is entrepreneur and author Ethan Santoria. His new book is Unwound, Real-Time Reflections from a Stumbling Entrepreneur. Failure's a bitch, but it happens, especially in entrepreneurship. And so it goes for Ethan Centoria in his refreshingly honest debut book. Ethan didn't set out to fail, but as his company ran into adversity, he realized that everything he'd learned about running a business was about making sure things didn't go wrong. Nothing had prepared him to handle it when they did. Ethan is a summa cum laude graduate from the Wharton School of Business and has served as co-founder and CEO of DealStruck, an online business lending platform, which is the inspiration for his book. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Uh, Ethan. Thanks, Catherine. Pleasure to be here. Well, you say that um, in your book, Unwound, this was something I, I didn't really want to write, but I had to write it. So why did you have to write this book about your failure in your business? Because nobody really wants, most of us don't even want to talk about it, especially when the topic is raw, which it is for you. Yeah, certainly the reason I would have preferred not to write it is because that would have meant I would have had success. And and that's, uh, you know, usually a more pleasant outcome. But as I sort of came to the end of my tenure, uh, winding down my business and getting ready to think about what to do next, it, it occurred to me that I actually I couldn't move on. Like there was so much that I wanted to document and capture and understand about how I spent five or six years of my life doing something that was you know, the hardest and most rewarding thing I did and it didn't work out. And I needed to make sure that if, you know, the next time I dedicate five or six years to it, that I've extracted as much learning from it. And one of the sort of key things I felt as an entrepreneur going through hard times was that uh, it was difficult to be, um, to, you know, to find friends, right? It was difficult to find people to talk to in a place to be open and honest and vulnerable. Uh, and I thought that putting, you know, putting that down on paper in a way that was accessible to others might help them uh, also confront some of their adversity better and maximize their learning from it so that they can take another swing and do better the next time. Well, that sounds good and very altruistic and really a good thing, obviously, because I think most, and maybe you know the statistics better than I, but many, many uh, startup businesses fail. Uh, More fail than are successful. So that's obviously a good reason for you to write the book. But Take us through like five years you've invested, not only money and time and passion and emotion and all this stuff in this business, and then it goes down the tube. So what happened? I mean, what did you do wrong? Yeah, a lot. There's, there's a, you know, the, the, the list is long, and that's in many ways why it filled a book. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, there were lots of things we did right as well. So, you know, I think that's one of the, the key takeaways is that even if your outcome isn't a good one, even if you you don't necessarily achieve the pinnacle that you wanted, that doesn't mean you did everything wrong, first of all. Uh, and, and I think taking a, an appropriate uh, look at what you did right and wrong is important because, you know, you don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. Um, in our particular instance, we were a lending company and 
we were trying to make the, the capital markets and access to capital for growing small businesses more fair, honest, and transparent. And many of our mistakes related more so to uh, the types of loans we were originating, how we were executing on uh, servicing those loans, and how we financed them more so than, um, you know, any internal chaos or founder disputes or or things of that nature. Um, But, you know, I think that when you make, when you have a startup, there's a few key things that you have to get right and they may change based on what industry you're in. And we happen to get a few of those things wrong and only in sort of hindsight realize that and have to work through them. And uh, unfortunately, we, we couldn't turn the thing around uh, the full way. So when you're going through that process, I mean, how do you, I mean, how do you sort of, I guess, from a social work perspective, I'm, I'm, how do you maintain your own self-confidence? I mean, I would assume you're feeling very vulnerable in that kind of situation. I mean, with, you know, employees, you have to what, let your employees go. Uh, your investors are losing money. How do you keep going? I mean, how how do you sort of keep your ego functioning? And you know, because this is a very personal. Obviously, it's it's your your baby, and uh, you're losing the baby. So, how do you keep your self confidence up so that you can go on? Yeah, I think I think that is definitely uh, a big challenge. Um, one of the the, the things that I always tried to focus on is putting others first. And it's true that your employees are, are going to be unhappy and, and disappointed. Uh, it's true that your investors may lose money. Um, but that doesn't mean you can't put them first and still focus on trying to uh, give them the most graceful exit possible, uh, show them empathy, um, try to help them either, in the case of an employee, find their next, uh, treat them with respect on the way out, make sure they understand what their options are. And likewise with your investors, you, you know, letting them know that you really do take accountability for what happened, uh, that you can provide some amount of explanation for sort of how it happened. And, you know, that you're really, really sorry for lack of a better word. And I think, you know, putting other people first, uh, even in those hard times, you sort of don't give yourself the opportunity to think too much about your, your ego, right? And think too much about what does this mean for me? Uh, how does this impact my future? And so that's really how I handled it. And, and part of why, when it was all said and done, I needed the space to write was because I, I sort of finally got a chance to, to look at myself and say, what, what did all this mean for me and how do I go forward to next. But while it was happening, it sort of wasn't really uh, on, my, on my mind. Yeah. Don't you think that you have to have a certain kind of personality to sort of thrive on this? And you sound like the, the kind of person who does have that personality. I think you had, um, you're the son of an entrepreneur, so you grew up in that kind of business. I mean, there are certain people who are suited for it and certain people who are not. There are those who, you know, are comfortable in the nine-to-five job. It doesn't sound like you were that kind of person. You started out on Wall Street. That wasn't for you. So there, there's, there's a certain, it seems to me, an uh, excitement in doing this, the highs and the lows, the winning and the losing. 
That's true. I, I actually remember um, I was speaking with an entrepreneur who's far more successful than me, a, a fellow um, founder in, in, the, in the financial technology industry. And he said, well, if I wasn't doing this, it would be gambling or drugs. Um, and like, I don't know if that's, you know, if that's necessarily true for everyone, but, but certainly that theme of it's a, it's a level of excitement and significance and, um, responsibility that, you know, I think many founders, uh, thrive on. Interestingly, when I wrapped up, um, I was almost certain I was telling everyone around me, I'm going to go get a nine to five. I don't want the responsibility. This was really difficult and frustrating and painful for my investors and my employees and me. And man, I just want to have a simple life. <laughs> and, you know, a couple months later, finally, after I got everything on paper and sort of had brought closure to that chapter, all I wanted to do was swing again. And so I don't know if that's, uh, you know, because I'm a masochist or, or, uh, you know, if it was just the, the, the nature of, my, of sort of the founder entrepreneur personality, but, um, I do think it's a certain type and, and if, if, if that's you, you just got to learn to embrace it. And that's something I've, I've been trying to do for the last couple of years. Yeah. I mean, there's some, it's sort of like there is kind of an addictive quality to it. Like you said, if you weren't doing this or some, you said earlier, you could be doing drugs or, or drinking, but, um, this is, it's, it's kind of that same kind of a feel. So what about, I mean, like, what did you learn from all of this? Let's say you're going on to next and you're not going to get that nine to five job, um, but you do want to engage in a startup or, you know, whatever you decide to do. Um, what, what were some of the things that you specifically learned from it? I, I know one of the things you talked about was it's important when you're starting a business. Uh, transparency is an important piece of it. Let's talk about that. Yeah. Um, so transparency is, is really important, particularly as you start to build a team and, and have employees. A lot of people will come to your startup from jobs that may pay them more, certainly from jobs that are probably more secure. And they're coming because they believe in you. They believe in the, the mission and the vision of the company you're building. Um, but they're grownups and they know that they're taking a risk and they're taking a risk for, in a way that if it works out, ultimately you, the founder or the, or the CEO are going to be a bigger beneficiary than they are. Uh, and so you have to acknowledge what they, what they have in a sense sacrificed um, to come join you on, on your journey. And one of the ways to do that is to be transparent with them and to not sugarcoat things, to let them know when, when, when we've hit goals, when we've not hit goals, when, when things are going well, or when they're going terribly. Um, you know, if you go back to sort of the question you asked about what I learned, I think there's sort of three quick lessons that I can recall uh, that, were, that, that are applicable beyond sort of finance and lending, which was the area that I, I've been in. One of those is patience. Uh, when you start a business, your, your eyes can often be bigger than your stomach. You want to do everything as fast as you can. You maybe have raised some money. Uh, maybe you put your own money into it, but you have a vision of what this thing is going to become, and you just want to race as quickly as you can to get there. And slowing down is, is a difficult act, but um, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's one that needs to be intentional. But often, if you slow down a little bit, 
you'll make better decisions. Uh, it may take you a little bit longer, but in the end, probably not. And, and so one of the things that I wish I had been is more patient, and it's certainly something I'll do in the future. Uh, okay, so, second yeah. one. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, so patience, and then number two is what? Number two is people. Uh, I think everyone in this space uh, and in business in general ha- has known people who they've worked with that they really enjoyed and people who they didn't. And I think when you go into a startup or, or founding a business, um, not only are you going to be spending an inordinate amount of time with the people you work with, but you're going to be relying on them in an unstructured environment in a way that you may not in a large corporation. Uh, when you're starting a business from scratch, you won't have, you know, all the robust internal controls and checks and balances and policies and procedures documents. You have to create that from ground zero. And, and as you're creating that, you need to rely heavily on the people around you. And so you really need to um, vet them, spend time with them, check references, uh, monitor them closely, kind of trust but verify, and, and, and um, not, not hold on to people who don't serve you longer than, um, than you have to because having the right people is, is ultimate. You know, people build companies, right? Um, uh, products don't, right? People build them. So you have to have the right people. That's number two. So that's really key. Uh, one of the things you, you, you've also said that entrepreneurs, and I'm assuming you, are, tend to be control freaks. So in the, like, if, if you're a control freak uh, you, because it's your business, how do you, you know, it, it would seem to me that's really when you're dealing with your employees and the people who are building the business, how do you work that? Because that would seem to me, you know, to be able to let go, to let people do their own jobs, whatever they're supposed to do. Um, how do, you know, that would seem to me one of the issues. Yeah, it, it, so a lot of it, you know, is in the hiring process, right, and, and, and um, going sort of slowly and methodically through that, um, having sort of a systematized way to evaluate people. But even if you have a great hiring and interviewing process, you're still probably going to get it wrong a third of the time, maybe, maybe even as high as half. And so as you have people in your organization, I think one of the things that uh, – you have to do as the founder or CEO, whatever your role is, is try to set up an environment where, you know, people can run, can have freedom within a wide boundary, but where you set those boundaries that when someone runs up against them, they have to come, you know, do a secondary check, right? They either have to come through you or get a second set of eyeballs on it. Because if you set those safeguards where you say, within these boundaries, if someone screws up, it's not going to kill my company, um, then it's okay. You, you know, you need to let people experiment and have freedom and, and have their own small failures in their own little roles so that, um, so that they can sort of take those roles to the next level and take the business to the next level. But you have to really think through as the sort of the, the, the architect of the business, where do I have to put up those sort of walls? Um, how wide can I draw them? But I need to make sure that, you know, where they're, where there, where there do need to be walls, when someone uh, bumps against it, like I'm not, you can't let them go through it without calling the question. Can you give us, Ethan, give us a specific example for in in, in uh, DealStruck where you didn't do that and it didn't work out? We were unable to 
accomplish what you just what you just uh, which is what you were just talking about. Yeah, I mean, simple example I, I, I mentioned in my book is uh, I had an operator who was uh, very experienced and, and had been in, in our specific line of lending for a long time. And um, he had a lot of latitude within running the operation to make decisions around um, credit and around servicing, uh, servicing being sort of how you interact with your clients to, you know, make sure they pay their loans and accommodate any issues they have. And, um, you know, one of the things that, that I didn't look at closely enough early on was how large the advances were that he were making, he was making to certain clients. And so it's a very simple lending 101 that, you know, it's embarrassing to even say it now that there wasn't, uh, I didn't have a safeguard to say, Hey, when, when you're making an advance over a certain amount, like, that can't happen without, you know, one, two or three other eyeballs on it. Um, and ultimately, you know, one of those larger advances was made and it, and it turned out to be uh, a very, a very bad one for us. All right. So now number three, you said there's patients, people, and what else does one need? Yeah. I'll make it sort of a, a nice mnemonic, the three P's, I guess, right? Patients, people, and profit. Um, you know, in the venture community and the startup community, there's different types of startups, right? And, and one is not better than the other. There's, there's businesses where, you know, you're going to go open a coffee shop or a retailer and you sort of know what the business model is and you know what the product is that you're selling and, you know, you sort of have to just go execute it. Um, but the business model is known, meaning, you know, coffee costs 50 cents. We sell it for two bucks. Hey, we make money um, in, in sort of the, the techno- high tech world or the startup world where you're trying to build these you know, sort of big, disruptive industry changing companies. Um, a lot of times profit goes by the wayside uh, and the companies are financed by venture capitalists and other investors with an eye towards just growing as big as they can, as fast as they can. And I think one of the things that I learned is that going a little bit slower and always keeping a closer eye on if you're not at least profitable uh, the full way through to the bottom line, uh, really um, making sure that there's an outlet by which you could make your business standalone sustainable as quickly as possible in the case that you either can't raise additional outside capital or the market changes and it makes your big vision more difficult to achieve in some way. Maybe pricing comes down or competition increases, those sorts of things. And I think a lot of times it's build, build, build. We want to get big, big, big. Um, and if you can think a little bit more about either growing profitably throughout or making sure that there's always that option to sort of turn on your profitability quickly, you certainly will have um, a higher likelihood of making it through uh, difficult times, whether they're driven by your own internal issues, um, like some of ours were at DealStruck, or or driven by sort of macro trends that you need, you need to wait out. So, so patience, people, profit, those are three of the, the big takeaways that, that I, I had from my uh, first founding endeavor. At what, and so what point would you say that you sort of felt or you had a sense, I would assume, that things were really weren't going well? I mean, I think you said five years you were in the business. I mean, did you, was there any point, like after three years or four years? I mean, there must have been some uh, feelings or sense that, hey, maybe it, we're going in the wrong direction. 
Yeah, it was about three years into it. We actually had a, an unbelievably successful run um, for the first three years or so, and uh, that was a set of high highs in the scheme of entrepreneurship. Uh, but in our business, the lending business, you make decisions today and you see how those decisions play out over a period of time in terms of how your loans perform. And so it was about three years in where one of our product lines started to show some, some deterioration that was going to make it a real challenge for us to, to continue to reach our, our long-term vision of being the best place for a small business to finance growth. Um, and so at that point, your, your imperative changes as the CEO you have to focus less on uh, growth and, and value and entirely on essentially taking a company that was, you know, a high-growth startup and now instantly taking it into a turnaround mode where you're thinking about cutting costs, uh, managing expenses, finding an exit, raising capital at any cost. And so there was about 18 months of coming in every day knowing that my goal is to land this ship in some way possible without it breaking into pieces when it lands. And during that time, my company still had to operate. And, and that was a challenging period where you've got 70 people showing up every day, working their butt off, uh, putting food on the table for their families, uh, really enjoying what they do, enjoying the people they do it with, and having to keep that environment somewhat constant because the only way to complete the turnaround is to have your team working that hard and staying that focused and being uh, as diligent as they were. Uh, so it, it was sort of three years up, a year, a year and a half, turning it around, and then a few months winding it down at the end. That's how I spent my time. And how did you sleep at night, knowing that you had all these responsibilities and obviously all these people who depended on you? I had the really good fortune of meeting who's now my wife, um, actually sort of right at the peak of the business. And so I think having a really strong support system outside of work um, of people who care for you unconditionally and only want to see you be happy uh, helps you have perspective when you walk into that door uh, of your house at night and, and have to sort of leave the dirty dishes in the sink until you wake up the next, the next morning. So coming home to my wife every day, um, she wasn't my wife at the time, but you know, she stuck with me through a very difficult time and, you know, building our relationship uh, during a difficult professional experience, I think was, was good for us both and, and gave us a really strong footing. Obviously parents, siblings, friends, you just, have to embrace their support. And it's one of the most unbelievable things that um, it's not just for entrepreneurs, it's probably people in general, but, but you can be in entrepreneurship at times unbelievably consumed with yourself. Um, and even while you're doing that, ignorant of the, the people around you, um, not necessarily picking up on what, what burden you're putting on them, they'll continue. Uh, the people who really care for you will continue to support you and encourage you and make sure that you know that um, regardless of your business outcome, your, your personal circumstance is still okay. And, and that was just an unbelievable um, support to get through it. 
Yeah, because you talk about um, entrepreneurs being narcissistic. Um, that that may be one of the traits of being an entrepreneur. And so, um, you know, in, in that context, um, it sometimes is difficult to get the kinds of support that you're talking about. I mean, very often what happens is your partner leaves you when the business goes down, the, you know, when your business isn't doing well. But you, you really had the opposite experience, which, um, which sounds like with your wife, with your family, friends, uh, even the people who are in the business with you. Yeah, I was I was very lucky, and, and I think um, going through that experience has, I think, taught me that to the extent that you can moderate your narcissism as an entrepreneur, it, it might be a good thing. I mean, there's a certain amount of egotism that's that I guess is naturally involved with thinking that you can create something out of nothing, um, but I do think that if you if you can learn to care for your people and the people around you as much as you'll experience as, as much as you'll experience it in the opposite direction, your likelihood of being a better manager and a better boss and a better founder uh, is pretty high. So now we have a few minutes left. So what's next? Do we know? Do you have any idea of where you're going with this entrepreneurship I, I, startup? Well, I certainly am going to do it again. Uh, if you ask me uh, what it is that I'm going to do or when it's going to happen, I'm not sure. Uh, but I took a few whacks at large corporate um, opportunities and job descriptions. And as much as I wanted to force myself to go get that nine to five and kind of not, not be in this world of uncertainty, it just didn't mesh with me. So um, right now I'm spending a lot of time working with other entrepreneurs um, uh, in an advisory consulting basis, spending a lot of time in, in my industry, which has been financial technology and specialty finance, uh, working with a few great partners uh, to help support other entrepreneurs and businesses that are developing new products and taking their, their businesses through the same stages that I did at DealStruck and trying to help them do that more successfully. Um, but um, when that next idea shows up or when the right opportunity uh, reveals itself, my, my hope is that um, I'll take another swing and incorporate everything that I've learned through the ups and the downs to, to make it a great outcome uh, for everyone involved. Yeah. Well, to me, it sounds like you're, I, to me, it sounds like you're ready to do that and you will do that. But um Tell us where can we go actually to get more information about you and what you're doing and about the book, um, a, a website that we can go to. Sure. So I have a personal website. It's uh, ethancenturia.com, and the book is available for sale there. It's available for sale on Amazon as well. Um, you'll be able to find additional information about uh, the advisory and consulting work that, that I'm doing at uh, greendoorpartners.com. And um, that's pretty much all there is about me on the Internet, I think. <laughs> <laughs> right now, but who knows, right? We'll, uh, that's right. That's yeah, right. I'm sure there'll be a lot more about you. Um, it's, it's been great talking to you today, um, and we've been talking to Ethan Centoria. He's author of Unwound, Real-Time Reflections from a Stumbling Entrepreneur. So I hope you're getting good sales from the book. 
Yeah, doing well and uh, getting nice feedback. So if you do, if you're listening now and you happen to pick it up and, and, and read it, please send me an email and share your thoughts. I love to, to sort of hear what uh, what it meant to you, whether you liked it or disliked it or were totally indifferent. Yeah, I'm sure. Have you gotten a lot of feedback? I mean, pros and cons? Or I have. I found that the, the cons. I think they just choose not to not to tell you because mostly it's been. Uh, great positive feedback, but but I'm I'm certain that not everyone who who has picked up my story or or read my book will have had high praise. So I think those people have have uh, just decided that you know it's it's not worth their energy to uh, uh, to tell me they didn't like it. So so right. it's been highly positive to this point. <laughs> great, terrific. Okay, thanks, Ethan. Thanks, Catherine. I appreciate it. Yeah, we're, we're going to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private, personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for you with Arvind Vora, Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. News, opinion, your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787, 1-866-472-5787, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is workplace mental health expert Marianne Clyde. Living in the 21st century can make it very hard to determine what's real, what is fake news, and where the truth is. In our highly publicized and polarized era, best-selling author Marianne Clyde shares how to become grounded and connected to the source of truth, spotting propaganda from different media outlets with open eyes and ears to opposing viewpoints. Marianne has her own award-winning center for holistic psychotherapy, is the founder of the Be the Change Foundation, and has been featured in the USA Today, CBS, and the Huffington Post. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on, Marianne. Hey, Catherine. It's great to be with you. 
Well, fake news and all is it, fake news is always in the news. We have our president always talking about fake news, right? So this is a hot topic. You are you've been in the business. Uh, the you are a therapist. Um, you've been doing this for what twenty five, thirty years. Right, um, right. Yeah. Wow. So how does your work as a therapist and a relationship counselor relate to this particular topic? Well, you know, it's so funny because we re- this really isn't new and we really shouldn't be shocked because even as human beings, we we recite the truth as it's true to us, as it relates to our reality. Um, I once read a book and I'm not thinking of the... Uh, author's name right now, but it's Mistakes Were Made, But Not By Me. And I thought, I love that title. And it's because we all, we all don't really own up to our full mistakes because we remember things that make us look good. And I think all news media is going to report news that makes them look like the expert, makes them look like they have the inside story, makes them look like they're in the know or they agree with, uh, you know, the main, uh, mainline American people. You know, so, so this really isn't, isn't new. I think it's big right now for sure. Yeah, so what we, the question is that you ask is, Exactly. How are we being, what we should say, propagandized, and how do we resist getting sucked into all of this? Um, because it really is quite. It's very confusing. I mean, uh, right. yeah, yeah. You're right. We're, it's it is very confusing, and and I think the first step is being aware that this is normal human human behavior in many ways. It's a little accentuated now. So number one, if you're not shocked by it and you always understand that someone is telling the story from their perspective, there is always another perspective. And, and you're a social worker, and I'm assuming you've dealt with families and couples and individuals too, and you know that the first person to speak sounds like they're right until you hear the second side of the story and perhaps the third side of the story. So the first thing we do to protect ourselves is to keep that in mind and to understand I need to hear all the different outlets. I need to hear a variety of, of input. Um, and we don't just believe the first thing we hear. Because you most know, people, it's, though, Marianne, don't do that. You know, you have oh my the gosh, people, I know. well, we can take examples. You know, you have the people who listen to Fox News, and then you have the people who listen to MSNBC, and then mm-hmm. maybe more of the people in the middle are listening to CNN, and they sort of stick to, I, I think, generally speaking, that audience sort of remains the same for each one of these news outlets. How yeah. do you get people to become aware and to say, hey, you know, maybe... And I'm probably guilty of that myself. I am guilty of that myself. I mean, I have the news outlets I listen to that make me feel comfortable, that make me not get upset or excited because <laughs> they're on my. T- I'm on their team. They're on my right. team, and I'm yeah, and right. sort of shy. Yeah, shy away. And you're from not the, the only one. Yeah, yeah, because you're you're correct. We all do that. I do that too. Have my favorite, you know. I have it on a certain radio station on my way to work. I turn turn on a certain TV station when I get home from work, and and yet, I think um, and you, we're not going to get people to constantly um, change the channels because that's irritating in itself. But 
the, the idea is just to be aware is huge because when you notice that you're triggered and, you know, and I know you're on Facebook too, so obviously you can see some of those things people post on Facebook and you want to just take it to, you just want to suck your teeth and go, how could they even post that? How could they even say that? But you have to remember that we're all going to be triggered. We're all going to have our place where we feel safe and we're going to have those people with which we don't feel safe. And so if you notice when you're triggered and you, you just want to ah, strangle somebody, it's important to have some coping mechanisms. And my favorite one is always take a deep breath and detach for a moment because when, when we're in fight or flight mode, which is exactly what happens when, when we get stressed, and it's a natural human defense mechanism, but we can't stay there for a bunch of reasons. One is because that's going to cause us to react if we're in, if we're in panic mode. And when you react instead of respond, that's when you say things you, you shouldn't have said, you, you judge people um, without having all the information. And, you know, whenever you're in a fight with somebody and you get triggered and you lash back, that's when we say the things that we're sorry for later. So well, right now, big- our country, and I want to sort of bring this into the, because uh, I think this topic is really important in the context mm-hmm. of what's happening in our country, and you and you you do you discuss this. I mean, we are a divided country. We are. Uh, it, it seems to me, and there is so much, uh, and and, and that's dangerous, uh, as you've kind of been describing. Um, mm-hmm. So, it's really important that as individuals, as we need to. Um, be able to address this because look, I mean, you look what's happening in Congress, for instance. Can we relate this to, to some of the, you know, what's <laughs> happening in terms of politics? <laughs> Absolutely, because it's and and again, you, you said something very important: is we all have to take our own personal responsibility because we're not going to get a whole swath of people to all of a sudden go, oh. I'm going to watch whatever TV station I'm not watching now. But the individual responsibility, and that's why I keep just getting on my soapbox and preaching then, this is all about our individual responsibility because when when I stop being reactive and I notice when I'm triggered and I calm myself down and I say, tell me more about that instead of, you know, shut up, you idiot. You know, and I and I take responsibility for the way I respond. Then it encourages people around me to also take responsibility for how they respond. And we can speak with many, many people who disagree with us if they are just reasonable. But as soon as somebody tells you you're an idiot, you, we're we're automatically going into defense mode. And so. Um, it's just so important to say, I can't control what you think or how you respond or how, what you say. I can respond the way I can. And, you know, and that, that's why I lay out the principles in, in my book, Sentivity, is how to get grounded. And things, meditation changes your brain. The practice of gratitude changes your brain. And uh, the pr- practice of forgiveness or letting things go changes your brain. This 
this is important because we're addicted at this moment, I think as a society, to the reactivity. We can get reacted to emotions just like we can be addicted to alcohol, drugs, sex, whatever else we're addicted to. So it's, but it's what's important. happening when you're talking about, let's get back, say, talk about some of these media outlets. I mean, they sort of play on that, right? I mean, they play they on those emotions because that, it, that, that brings in, uh, it's about ratings, it's about money. And advertisers, yeah. Advertising, exactly. So that it's really easy to get hooked into this and start blaming, oh, as you right. say, and not taking a look and being aware well, what's our responsibility? And most people and well-educated people that I know are, it, it really play the blame game. You know, it's the senator's fault. It's the president's fault. It's this person's fault. But really not taking a look at how can I make a difference and make a that's change. That's right. And, that, and that's the only question that really matters at the core of things is what can I do about this? And you've got thousands of listeners, and they're a smart, intelligent, educated audience. And it's so important for everybody who's listening to say, I am a leader, and people follow me. You know, people are going to follow you and, and do what you do, um, just like in parenting. You know, as well as I do, you can, you can tell your kids what to do but they're going to do what you do, not what you say. And it's the same when we're leaders in our community. It's the same if we're in Congress. It's the same if we're the president. It's the same if we're a news outlet, that we have people watching and imitating. And do we want them to imitate the reactivity, the judgmentalism, the lack of respect and, and gross accusations and blame? Or do we want them to be smart and responsive and wise? And the only way to get people to follow you to do, by doing that is to be that. And, um, and some people go, yeah, 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 that's, but that's not enough. But actually, it's where we have to start. That's yeah. I agree with you. That's the beginning. I mean, we you know, and starting obvious what you say with awareness. I mean, you say, and you said this when a, a country or a society is divided and factionalized, it is right. weakened, and you can see that happening in our country. Maybe comment on that because I think that's a real critical in the way people see us around the world uh, is um, how they feel about us, seeing us as a leader that's is true. becoming diminished. That's true, and that doesn't mean that we can't have differing opinions, of course. But but yes, you're hearing all kinds of feedback lately on how how you know how the world is viewing the U.S. I mean, we see that with every president, we get some sort of a, a feedback. But but the basic principle that a house divided against itself will fall is if if they can get us infighting and knocking each other down then we have no strength. So, so what, it, it, what I find in a conversation that I'm having with someone else, even if they're of a different political party, a different persuasion, they have a different side on the issue, is to look for what we have in common. And, and I have many people that are um, friends, you know, that are on, on different political side than I am. And yet at the same side, we have intelligent conversations all the time. But what happens is if, if people are venomous and evil to one another, then 
then we withdraw and we will no longer respond. We will no longer listen. So I would say that the thing that would keep us from being divided, even though we differ, that's a different thing. Diversion makes us unique and strong. Division destroys. So the fact that I have people with different in different nationalities, different races, different religions, different political parties in my sphere of influence, that strengthens me because it makes us strong like a diamond with all those different facets that, that sparkle in the light. But if, if I am just going to take that diamond and crush it with another diamond because that's the only thing that can crush another diamond. So we have to remember that my, my listening to as many viewpoints as possible keeps me wiser, stronger, better informed. You take a diverse issue like, like immigration or, um, you know, the things that really... Gun control. Gun control, yes, or abortion or any, any, um, or, or um, gay rights or, or whatever. There, it, 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 your view on that changes slightly when you know somebody in that situation. If, if I'm against gun um, control and you're for gun control and, and you're, you're for it because, say, someone in your family was shot. And so, of course, that's going to mean something to me. And if, if I take a strong stand against um, something else, if I take a strong stand against gay marriage, but I have a dear couple friend who, who is lesbian and they want to get married, that's going to inform my opinion about that. And I'm going to not stand so strong. And, and people um, need to listen to people who are in those situations. No one situation defines any entire issue. Can but, you give us an example? Because you said you are someone who has, you have different, you have friends in sort of all walks of life, very diverse, mm-hmm. um, and you're able to, I mean, I have friends who will say, well, I, I can't talk to Republicans, or I can't talk to Democrats, <laughs> or I don't want to have anything to do with them. Um, and so, it gives us... Yeah, I'm not laughing at you, I'm situation. laughing with you. <laughs> <laughs> because... Every, there are so many people that say that. I just can't, I can't listen to that person. And, and the point is, what, what I think they're probably saying is, I can't listen to somebody who's offensive. Um, because I really think a lot of it's in the delivery. Don't you? You know, if, if oh, I, yes, it's not, in other words, it's not what you're saying, but it's how you're saying it. Is that what you right. mean? It's, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and I, and it's like, if, if you see a whole group of, there's all kinds of marches these days. There's, there's a March the for Life, march. there's a Women's March, there's, you know, and they're, they're, they're marches for everything and, and they represent things. And, and so somebody might be triggered by one of those marches thinking, those people are all idiots because they believe X. 
the fact of the matter is when you know somebody that's marching in one of those marches and they have strong beliefs, they have a reason for those beliefs. So I think it's really important to become curious and say, tell me why you marched. Tell me what you were trying to accomplish. Tell me why that's important to you. Because when, when something is important to someone you respect and admire, it becomes important to you, at least on some level. It might not change your mind politically, but it makes you gentler and more, uh, what's the word, kind of, it, your view becomes broader and, and I, gentler is really the only word yeah, I can think, I think of offhand. What you're saying is you don't have this kind of knee-jerk reaction when someone says, well, I don't believe in gun control. But sort of what I hear you saying is that perhaps we all have to become sort of lay therapists, like start asking questions <laughs> about why you feel that way rather than sort of responding in that, you know, that gut kind of like getting angry and defensive. But That's, that's exactly yeah. right because... Most reasonable people, if you talk to them and you slow them down from their reactivity, they do understand. Like, like somebody might say, Don't, you can't take my gun away. Well, that's not gun control. That's, that's taking your gun away. Gun control is something totally different. It might be limiting who can get what kinds of guns for a certain reason. And there are a whole lot of of gray areas between they're going to take my gun away and you can never have a gun and then the other side of the spectrum that I can have all the assault rifles that I want because it's my right, you know. And there's a whole lot of space between those two viewpoints. And, um, And reasonable people can talk about those things. And I, that does apply to the other, I, I don't know whether I'd call them toxic issues, but the ones that really get people going, as you say, right. gun control, abortion, gay rights. I mean, we can probably list five of them. That, right. Uh, yeah. So it's really, as you say, stepping back, being aware. Asking the questions. Asking the questions, not reacting. And then, mm-hmm. of course, you, I mean, you meditation. Cause you, which, right. Yeah. I think with well, meditation, that- people. Maybe you want to talk about that a little more because people are meditation. I don't have time for meditation. I mean, that's, <laughs> they think of meditation. I have to go and meditate for an hour. That's not what you're talking about. No. You know, certainly if somebody's going to ask me, I'm going to say, yeah, you can start meditating 20 minutes twice a day. However, almost everybody comes back to me and says, I don't have 20 minutes twice a day. And so I'll say, but you can take a deep breath every time you stop at a red light. You can... Um, close your eyes and just let the water run over you in the shower and kind of picture it washing the stress off of you. You can um, close the door to your office for five minutes and just breathe in and out for a few minutes. Because what, and this is becoming more and more commonplace in the, in the workplace as well, because when we're frantic, when we're reactive, when we are, are filled with negative and toxic emotions, we waste so much time. Our, our, it's like our brain, um, we have to defragment our brain, and that's sort of what meditation does. Because, you know, if you have too many programs running at the same time, your computer's going to slow down. Same thing happens in your brain. It helps you... Um, it helps the stress centers in your brain, the amygdala, 
kind of calm down and the gray matter strengthen and grow because it's, it's um, and that's the part that helps us view people differently. When you're stressed, it's much more common for somebody to view this group of people as okay and that group of people as the enemy. Whereas if your brain is working well and calm, it's much easier to see the commonalities and that technically we all come from the same source. We all have something in common, even if it's only our humanity. We have something in common, and when you have things in common, you're less defensive, less afraid, less... um, you go on attack mode less. You can, see, you can see the importance of diversity of opinions, diversity of thought. Um, our society is great about thinking about diversity of race, nationality, and so forth, but we don't always give the, the um, credence to diversity of thought. We're afraid of it. If you think this, then you must be that. You know, and, and we make all these associations. But honestly, this, if we can change our brain, and energy is contagious. You know, stress, you know, if you walk into a, a crowd that's crazed, it's going to raise your anxiety levels tremendously. But if you walk into a room of people praying and meditating, it's going to calm you down. Same thing if you're out on the streets. Is there a good energy with that march or is there a negative toxic energy with that march? And it all begins with me and it all begins with you and it all begins with each one of us in in your um, wonderful audience. Well, that's well said, and we have a minute left, so we, I'd like to leave it with that thought because that's a really, uh, it's a great way, you know, sort of bring, tying everything all together. Just, but Mary, we've been talking to Marianne Clyde. Um, give us a website we can go to, to, uh, you know, your website, a uh, website where we can get more information about you. You're, I know you have several books. Uh, yes. So we want, yeah. Thank you for asking. My, my newest website is, is based on my newest book, Zentivity, and the website is zentivity.guru. It's specifically written for how to eliminate chaos, stress, and discontent in the workplace. Great. And then thank you. that so takes I you have, to other we, things. I, yeah, we have 30 seconds left. Great. Um, it was, yes, thank you so much. It was great talking Thanks, to you. Thanks, Catherine. Yep. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.